God bless you. You may be seated. Most of you I've never seen before. You've never seen me. And you have been here before. Uh, this is different, but I've been a part of this meeting from the beginning, and the purpose of this meeting has never been inspiration. purpose of this meeting has always been impartation. We have way too many meetings that are inspirational, but they don't impart anything. Inspiration is like a uh, piece of paper laying in the road, and the semi comes down the road, and the turbulence caused by the semi causes the paper to rise up and flutter around, and as soon as the semi gets down the road and the turbulence ceases, the paper finds its way right back to the road. Nothing wrong with inspiration. Inspiration is not a bad thing. But inspiration alone is of no significant value. If we equate inspiration with the breath of God, God did not breathe life in the garden and hurriedly create a body to collect it. God first created a body, first created a structure. He had a plan. And only after all of that was completed did God breathe the breath of life, the breath of inspiration in it. That's the reason why we go to meetings and get inspired and go home and nothing changes. Because breath unstructured, un channeled, and I don't like to use the word channel because it's too age, new agey sounded, breath without conduit. There has to be a conduit for the breath of life to flow through, or nothing gets accomplished. And this meeting has never been about that. Uh, it's always been about impartation, and uh, I think that's very, very, very important, and I Appreciate uh, Brother Dylan giving me the opportunity to share some of this with you. A um, couple of things I need, I need to lay a little groundwork since there's so many faces here that uh, I know that we don't really know each other. First of all, the first Sunday of my life, uh, my mother took me to United Pentecostal Church. United Pentecostal Church is not even six months older than me. United Pentecostal Church was formed in September of 45, and I was born in February of 46. I've known nothing but the United Pentecostal Church all my life. And in addition to that, uh, I'm a part of the structure. I'm the district superintendent of the Maryland, D.C. district. All of that is important for you to know. Because if you don't know all of that, you're about to think I'm the most negative person you've ever seen. I'm also a home missionary. Once a home missionary, always a home missionary. Sorry. 39 years ago, the 12th of September, 
I was 24, my wife was 19. We drove into a town knowing nobody, having nobody, never having pastored. With uh, nine months of full-time evangelistic experience as our only ministerial calling card. Um, this past week in our summer slump, we had 1428. Oh, and by the way, we don't have a building. After 39 years, we're meeting in the Knights of Columbus Hall three times a week. No building. We had 1428 in the summer slump. I would like today to biblically eliminate every excuse you've got. Okay. This is, and I, I love Brother Anthony Mangan and uh, the Pentecostals of Alexandria, a great church, and because of the times, it was a great meeting. But you're not going to leave there and go home and do that. You're not going to have a couple of hundred voice choir and all those musicians and all that facility. You, you can't relate to that. This is a home missionary pastor. This is a home missions church. You're sitting on fold, on, on, on chairs that I don't know about you, but they're not wide enough for me. I, I, I sit more on the, on the metal than I do on the cushion. Okay, uh, it's a home missions church. It, every, everything is a battle. Everything is a struggle. There's nothing easy. But it's one thing to be frustrated because you're trying to do it like the church world does it. It's another thing to be frustrated because you really haven't fine-tuned your understanding of what the scripture says. One more thing before I go a little farther here. I uh I don't I don't know what your particular uh, leanings are whether you're conservative or liberal I'm neither of those If I'm going to have a label I'm choosing my own label I am a biblical restorationist My goal is and has been as long as I've understood it to get back in every detail as closely in what's taught and practiced to what the, the apostles did in the beginning. You can't improve on that. You can't improve on it. You can't improve on the book. And uh, you have, and I apologize in advance, uh, I've been working on this seminar. It's actually designed to be about a six-hour seminar, and I'm going to do it around two, at least hit the high points of it in around two. Um, but And I apologize. I had this printed off at Kinko's last night, and I don't know what happened, but there's stuff at the bottom of pages that belongs at the top, and it's I'm embarrassed. It's a mess. The information is there, and the reason I'm giving it to you is this. Uh, I probably won't be using it. So at least you'll have something to take home with you and study 
if you care to. I'm already not on the notes. <laughs> uh, and as I've said many times here and other places, I am not a preacher. I'm a teacher. It takes longer to explain than it does to proclaim. It also takes more preparation work to explain than it does to proclaim. That's why there's so few teachers among us. Because it's a lot more work to be a teacher. Hallelujah, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So, I want to talk to you today. Uh, this seminar is going to be called Dare to Double. The Lord gave that to me. It's a challenge. First question is, to double what? We have to accept the fact that there are three churches with any group of people regardless of its size. You have the crowd, whether that crowd is 10 or 10,000. You have the crowd. That is not the church. If you don't accept that, you're going to live in constant frustration. You have the crowd. Then you have those who qualify for corporate membership. That means they dot your I's and cross your T's enough that they are qualified to vote. I will say this to you, and I don't mean to be unkind in doing it, but if everybody in your crowd is allowed to vote, you're not doing a very good job of shepherding. Because there is no crowd where every person in that crowd is qualified to be a voting member of a church corporation. That's, uh, that's only a terrible tragedy waiting to happen. Then, of course, third, and this is the bottom line you get to, you have the real church. And it's always the smallest of the groups. It's the smallest of the groups. And, and this is an, an important concept to have. Brother, uh, Dill and I were talking the other day about a situation and uh, uh, he said, I said, how long so-and-so been a part of your church? He said, well, he had, he's been attending regularly, et cetera, et cetera. I understood the terminology. And then he made this statement. He said, you know, there are some people who are scaffolding. Now, I got to be honest with you. I've used the terminology, and everything in me cringes at the thought. But the bottom line is, there are some people that just help fill seats so your situation looks better till the Lord's able to bring along people who want to be committed. And if you get so wrapped up into trying to make those people what, what you think they ought to be when that's not their intent and they're not willing, you will live so frustrated and your church won't grow. Brother J.T. Pugh made the statement to me when I was a young preacher, personally, and then I also already made make it publicly. He said to me, Brother Wright, after years of pastoring, after all kind of, uh, of frustration, he said, I've learned this one very important fact. After all of my prayer and all of my preaching, all of my teaching, all of my counseling, people have a right to go to hell if they want to. People have a right to go to hell if you want, if they want to. 
If you are so wrapped up in your success that you can't let people go and let it be as if you're pulling your hand out of a bucket of water where there's nothing missing in your life because they're gone, you're probably not ever going to see a church grow. Aren't we supposed to love people? I don't know about you, but I don't have any scars in my hand. I don't have any scars in my feet. My face hasn't been beaten to a bloody pulp where I'm not recognizable anymore. That's the reason Mary didn't know who he was. If the nails left scars, and the whip left scars, then the hour plus beating he received in the face marred his visage, Isaiah 52, more than any man, so that even the closest people to him physically did not recognize him anymore. Now, I don't have any of those scars. I'm not anybody's savior. I'm just a messenger. Just a conduit. Period. And if you get you so wrapped up into people that you get too high when they come and too low when they leave, you're never going to be effective in you being used to God. I know that sounds extremely harsh and uncaring, but it's the bottom line truth. I know good men of God who are totally ineffective because it's all about them. And they need the crowd for their benefit. And they need the crowd because it strokes their ego and gives them a sense of importance. It's like holding an office. If a man doesn't have a ministry before he gets elected to an office, God have mercy on the people he's supposed to be leading. If that office becomes his ministry because he didn't really have one before he got elected. If you and Jesus don't have it worked out so that you are at peace with yourself before you get in a pulpit. If the response of those people and how they do and what they do is what you need to feel good about yourself. You're done before you finish. And you may build a crowd, but you're never going to build a church. Because it's not about us, brother, sister. This isn't about us. I tell you, this has nothing to do with the North. I don't even know what I'm doing here. Sorry, brother Joe. <laughs> but you didn't expect anything different. <laughs> not after all these years. <laughs> there is a mental, spiritual an emotional mindset. I'm going to use those things collectively. That people who have seen major revival come to. Paul said it this way, ye are dead in your life. Is hid with Christ in God. The old saying is, win people to yourself and then you can win them to God. Chapter and verse, please. I want to see chapter and verse for that because it's exactly the opposite of what the Word of God says. 
They're not supposed to be one to me, my personality, my warmness, my kindness. They're not supposed to see me at all. If they see me and fall in love with me, then I fail. In fact, in my opinion, nice guys don't make good pastors. Because sometimes shepherds have to break the leg. And some guys can't bring themselves to do it. That's true. Sometimes that happens. I was sitting at the table uh, yesterday. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Brother Godwin and Brother Chetwell were sitting there. And they were telling me about Brother Ewing and how mad he could get. You're kidding. Merle Ewing? Oh, you, you, you don't know. I said, you're joking. No, no, he can, it doesn't happen very often, but he can get really, really angry. You know what they were really saying to me? They were telling me a couple of circumstances. He doesn't get angry at natural stuff. But when people that are supposed to be spiritual do stupid stuff, They said it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it leaves an impact. Now, I'm going to make you a challenge today. I'm going to make you a challenge. I'm going to give you some biblical principles, Bible, right out of the book. None of this has come from any book I've read. In fact, I stopped reading religious books Nineteen years ago, I don't believe it's wrong. I, I'm writing books. I, I'm not saying that's what anybody else should do, but I, I needed to know that the things that were coming to my spirit were coming directly from God and out of His Word, and not somebody else's. I, I got tired of other people telling me about God. I wanted to hear about God for myself, and so. These things didn't come out of any book. This is all stuff it, that, that the Lord has given me. Uh, and He's given it to me because I needed it. I needed it desperately. What happened to the clock? That was on the back there? Remember the clock? <sighs> yeah, but I have committed to be done here at noon. And, yeah, but I don't think... You, you know me... How long have you known me? You know I don't even look at the Yeah, I do glance at the clock. <laughs> but I forget to look at this, but I, I, I accidentally look at that. Okay. All right. I, I, I am going to step out and do something here that, that it is uncomfortable to do, but I'm going to obey the Lord. I'm going to say to you, I'm going to challenge you with but if you'll take these biblical principles home and pray about how God you want you to apply them, by the time this conference comes around next year, your attendance will be doubled. First of all, we have to understand some of the things that's keeping our attendance from doubling. 
the worst thing in the world you could do is double your church by moving. And here's, here's the reason why. And this, and please, I'm not trying to be unkind with that. I'm just going to make a statement. When Moses needed help, and the Lord wanted to multiply the eldership, the Lord told Moses to pick out 70 elders, and there were 70 more guys. And then when they all gathered before the tabernacle, God took of the spirit of Moses and put it on the 70. When you have musicians move in and ministers move in and saints move in that are not a part of your spirit of ministry, you have invited division into your And the only way they can be a part of what you're doing and not cause trouble is if at some point they're willing to give up whatever spirit of ministry they were under, including their own, if they were on their own, and come under the spirit of ministry that's the head spirit of ministry in that church. So, don't, I, I, I by far prefer to see people leaving the coming. I'm not being unkind and I'm not being facetious. I'm telling you it's the truth. Now, I've got about uh, 10 of my staff that will be arriving at the airport this morning with their wives. Uh, up until two years ago, uh, I would pay their expenses to go to general conference and after the meeting two years ago, not last year, but the year before that, I went to him and said, no more. You want to go to general conference? You give me time off, but it's your nickel, not paying a dime of it. Every bit of it's your expense. If you're going to go someplace at my expense, I'll pay all your expenses to go general, to Apostolic Conference in Madison. So they're coming in here. I will challenge you to check them out and tell me which ones prayed through at Antioch and which ones moved there. In fact, when I've, when I've challenged people to do that in the past, the ones that seem most like they prayed through there are the ones that actually moved in. Because they had to make a choice to take on that spirit of ministry. The others were born under it. You have to remove the things from your thinking that's a problem. I, I, I was invited a couple of years ago to do the, uh, the Mississippi Ethnic Evangelism, Mississippi District Ethnic Evangelism Seminar. Uh, and, and I'm, and it was a, a bad weekend. There was a little bit of ice, and so people stayed. We're not used to that stuff because we just. So, so we couldn't, we could, it was a little cool, so they couldn't meet in the place where we were going to meet. So we moved into a smaller room and, and we set all the stuff up, whatever, and, and we had to have a choir and we had to have the whole thing. And I'm not being critical, I'm just, I'm just telling you how we are. And I'm sitting there, the presence of God there, singing was great and all that, 
And the Lord spoke to me. I'm, I'm there to talk in an evangelism seminar. Ethnic evangelism seminar. I didn't know there was such a thing. Anyway. I, I thought we were all called just to reach all the souls we could reach. I didn't know there was a difference. Okay. Anyway. I was sitting there and the Lord's moving and, and, uh, and he said to me, one of the greatest hindrances to me reaching the world is my people's addiction to good church. Now, I've, I've done a lot of studying the book. Love the book, love to study the book. And there's, there's a lot of stuff in the book that's very detailed. There's some stuff in the book you you, you, you search high and low and you can't find any specifics on it. You can't find an order of worship anywhere in the New Testament. You can't really even uh, uh, find any specifics on arrangement. Well, about the only thing you can really find in the New Testament is that all of their services are basically were either held outdoors or in homes. Seeing as how there's no historic evidence of any church-owned building used for the purpose of worship services until the, the cathedral edict by Constantine in 315 A.D., ten years before he took our message of the oneness away, he took our structure away because he couldn't get the pagans to join the Christians who were now the state religion because uh, the Christians all met in homes and the pagans had these beautiful temples they built. And so Constantine, ten years before the Council of Nicaea, issued the cathedral edict that Christians had to meet in the former pagan temples and they were now churches. And that's how church building came about. Praise God. Now, well, I'm not opposed to church building. We struggled for 39 years trying to have something. Lost the building for the snow in February of 03. And haven't built it back because we're in tree herder country extraordinaire. And we're just about, just, just about to be issued a building permit that I now can't afford to build. Uh, after 10 years ago when we first applied for it. You know, the Lord has just made it where we couldn't do it traditionally. Couldn't do it. Now, I'm, not against, I'm not against church, but we love it. In fact, we're right now, we're trying to, the school building stood, the church building didn't, and we're trying to expand the little area we had for auditorium that they were using just for the off-night services. Uh, and uh, we're trying to expand that, and it'll see the thousand, but that feels like a prison. I know you're thinking, well, how do you have all those people? Well, that's another story, but I'll tell you briefly. Uh, on Sunday mornings, we have, we meet in 20 different locations. 
it was 23, and I shut three of them down because I gave them six months to grow, and they didn't. So I shut them down and brought all the folks back to where they could be. Just recently shut down three. We're up to 25. But we give you a shot. We give you plenty of help and, and uh, give you time and encouragement and support. And you don't produce anything that looks like movement in six to eight months or sometimes we've gone a year. We invite you to come back home. Because I'm not going to let them sit out there and die. So anyway, we needed 20 different locations on Sunday morning. We were using, ever since the building collapsed, we were using the high school. And uh, that's not working anymore. And so we're trying to get this auditorium finished. I'm about to have a uh, permit that was going to cost $5 million when we applied for it. Now it's be 15 and I, only a lunatic would build a $15 million church in this economy. So I'm a lot of things I'm not aware of. So it looks like every place we've turned, everything we've tried to do it traditionally, God's made up his mind. He's not going to let us do it. So you, you have to somewhere make up your mind really what's the most important thing to do. Do you want something that looks good to everything everybody else or do you want to fulfill the Great Commission? Do you want something? I mean, you know, <laughs> we went to Annapolis and it wasn't long. I mean, God began to work and people started getting the Holy Ghost and we were doing bus ministry and, you know, our numbers were growing. It was all awesome. Nobody cared how many we were having to get Holy Ghost. Nobody cared how many were getting baptized. Nobody cared how many people were coming to church or in Bible studies. So only one knows, have you built a building yet? That was success. That was success, Brother Dillon. Have you built a building yet? Uh, well, well, you know, we prayed this many through and, uh, and, and we've, uh, and, and, and we've got this number coming and, well, but because it was in a high school auditorium, it didn't count. Have you built a building yet? Now, let me tell you what you're feeling. Okay? And it, and it's our, it really is our problem. And I can't even get into this other stuff until I deal with this. Brother Reed said, yesterday said, <laughs> Said, how, how long are you teaching tomorrow? I said, well, I'm supposed to be through at noon. He said, noon? It takes you an hour just to get off the runway. Well, that's not exactly what I'm doing. I haven't wasted one word yet. Okay. Jesus said this. He said, he told the people of God of that day, the people that had the truth of that day, he told them, by your tradition, you have made the word of God of none effect and you've caused your worship to be vain. By your tradition, there is no good tradition. There's no good tradition. 
In fact, tradition and truth are diametrically opposed to one another. The reason we use the word tradition is because we have to have a term to describe something that's not true. Because if it was truth, we would just say it was biblical. But since it's not biblical, we have to call it tradition. And it's amazing to me. I, as a kid, by the time I was 18, I'd gone to church in uh, northwest Florida, northeast Florida, Virginia, Rhode Island, Maryland, Tennessee, and California. And it was amazing. Everybody had their three songs, their testimony. It didn't matter what part of the country you were. You would think you could flip over somewhere in the book of Acts and see, okay, you're supposed to start off with three songs, and then you're supposed to have a testimony service, and then you're supposed to have a special, and then you take prayer requests, and then there's an offering, and then you preach, and then you have a little altar call, and then you can go home and you've done your job again for another service. You'd think you could find it in there. It was all like that. And you know why it was all like that? Because nobody wanted to be different. Now, I can't stand here and tell you that that's unbiblical. Because the Bible doesn't say what the order of service is supposed to be. But the, the Bible doesn't say how in the world do we put restrictions on it that if you don't follow that order, you're somehow not right with God. How, how, how do we do that? And yet we do that. We don't want to be looked down on. It really bothers me when I go into a church and I don't see any makeup and no jewelry and no pants on women. That bothers me. That lets me know that church is dead. Ain't nothing happened in that church. i tell you what else bothers me. When the attendance on Sunday morning is the same attendance on Sunday night, that church is dead. That's not healthy. That's unhealthy. There's got to be some things if we want to fulfill the Great Commission. We've got to lay some Isaacs on the altar, except there's no ram in the thicket going to spare the life of those things. One of those things is what our brethren think of us. Now, I, I know what the Bible says. I'm not supposed to offend my brother, and I don't want to offend my brother. I don't want to offend my brother. But at the same time, I'm not going to be imprisoned by my brother either. The truth sets me free. The Bible, the Word of God sets me free. I'm willing to be under any restriction the Scripture places on me. I'm not under, willing to be under any restriction that tradition places on me. <laughs> if you, if I can put a picture on the screen up here, of, of what our services are like right now. On this little platform we've got. That, that's in this Knights of Columbus. You know what that is? That's a Catholic organization. On the back wall, there's this big symbol and it says, Holy Trinity Council of the Knights of Columbus. So there's a, everybody sitting in the auditorium to hear an apostolic preacher preach has got to look up there and subconsciously or otherwise, right over the top of his head, it says, Holy Trinity Council. 
You know what that the manager of that place said to us the other day? He said, you, are, you folks are the nicest people we have ever had here. Now, what, do you, what chance do you think that that guy or any of those people would ever darken the door of an apostolic church? Not going to happen. What, what if God was allowing all of this to happen just so we could be there and they could, we could saturate that building with the presence of God? He's had to walk through there a few times when we were acting apostolic. And that turned him off at all. You folks are the nicest people we've ever seen. What's happening there? Religious tradition blinds people to the gospel regardless of how they baptize. Now, I think I can start. I've already told you I'm going to skim this. And I apologize again. I'm very embarrassed that it's... I should have had all this done and hauled it down with me and I thought it would work. It didn't work. So, a lot of the first part of this is extremely important. And by me skipping over it, I have no intention of minimizing the importance of it. It's the reason it's in the beginning of the seminar. That's... This is the importance of it. But I, 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 I cannot, at this point in time, take the time to teach this specifically. Uh, in order to see a church grow, there's a couple of things that are very, 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 very important. First of all, I have to discern the difference between what is flesh and spirit. Because everything, Jesus said it this way, every plant that your heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Everything I do, everything I, I plan, all of my plans, everything I do, everything about everything I do that's of the flesh, no matter how well intentioned, and, in not a, and it's not of the Spirit, you have an enemy and his name's not Satan. The Lord opposes everything of the flesh. He is the adversary of everything that is born of the flesh. This church may do it, and God may have told them to do it, and they're doing it because God said do it, and He blesses that. This church can take their pattern, their plan, and do the same thing, but they're doing it because they're trying to compete and God, they didn't pray about it, and they didn't ask God about it, He didn't tell them about it, they just did it, and God will oppose every bit of it. I'll tell you something. I don't, I really don't understand why it has taken us so long to figure that out. But I'm not sure we have yet. That's why you're not going to get methodologies today, but you are going to get principles. Because you can take the principles. In fact, you're supposed to take the principles. But the issue is that you're supposed to take the principles and pray over the principles and seek God and let Him give you His plan for your church, your city. And it doesn't matter after He's given you the plan if it looks exactly like somebody else's plan. You can trust Him to bless it because He gave it to you. 
Nobody's saying you or I need to reinvent the wheel. There's nothing new under the sun. The issue is not the method. It's the will of God. Is this of the Spirit? Has God directed me to do this? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. I didn't say anything about born of the devil. I didn't say anything about born of the world. You know what? After you've driven all the world out of your church and you've driven all the devil out of your church, you're still going to have flesh there. After you've prayed and fasted and got all the world out of your heart and all the devil out of your life, you're still going to have flesh. And flesh is your biggest enemy, not the world and not the devil. Nothing is more detrimental to revival and harvest in a local church than flesh. If if 6,000 or so devils in one man couldn't keep him from falling at the feet of Jesus and worshiping, you tell me how the devil can stop anything. He cannot. In fact, he is the ignorant, stupid, unwitting tool of, of God from the beginning. He does all the stuff that God can't do for God. You look at me like that's strange. If he had known, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God couldn't crucify the man Christ Jesus. That's murder. The Bible calls it murder. God's not a murderer. The adversary is the murderer and the father of him. How do you think he, he performed the crucifixion? You think it was his idea? You think God was so powerless he couldn't stop it? Jesus himself said he could call six, uh, 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 10,000 angels and they'd come and deliver him. No. No, your, your enemy is not the devil. Sorry. He is on a leash and cannot in any way affect what you're doing except in the ways that God intends him to be the refining fire. Period. End of discussion. Bottom line, that's it. That's it. He can't. He can hinder those the, the sinner, but he can't hinder the saint unless the saints got so much stuff in their life that makes them an ain't. He can't stop the church. He can't. The gates of hell shall not. Not might not, not hopefully not, shall not prevail against the church. You gotta get that stuff out of your head. Your problem's not the devil. Well, it's the world. Oh, where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. The worse it gets, the more God's gonna manifest himself. Is that a bad thing? If I'm here trying to reach a city and all I've got's a candle, you think the world's going to notice me on a day like today? No. It's got to get dark before my candle's noticed. Getting dark's not a bad thing. It's not the devil. It's not the world. It's this stuff. This is the stuff. It's pride and all that goes with this stuff. It's the fear of what people are going to think about me. 
it's wanting to please men more than God. It's a fear of following God instead of following the Word and following the Spirit. You've heard it said before, if you haven't heard it, you should have. There's not one person in this room that was called to build a church. There's only one church builder. He makes that very specific. Upon this rock, I will build. He never asked for any help. He never said he needed any help. Well, what are we doing here? Just conduit. That's it. Just conduit. Oh, Lord. <laughs> the spirit and labor, the spirit of the labor and the origin of his method does not have an effect upon the outcome. What has an effect is his motives. Pure motive is the most important thing to God. Pure motive. Why are you doing what you're doing is more important than what you're doing. Why you're doing it. What is your real motive? What is your real motive? Now, I don't know about you, but I have discovered that God usually tests my willingness to do His will, not by seeing if I am willing to please Him rather than man, but see if I'm willing to please Him rather than woe-man. My wife is a spiritual woman. She is, the, she is one of the purest Christians I have ever known. It is extremely difficult living with her because I feel so far below her level of Christianity and that's no lie. It's the truth. And that, it took me a long time to learn that. Because she's not like me. But once I figured that out, then I figured this out. That there's only one human being on the face of this earth that it matters to me what she really thinks about, what they really think about this earth. Oh, I care what people think, but not that much. Not enough for it to be a question between me and God. But her, now that's different. And when God's got really something, something really important He wants to say to me or wants me to do, he almost always gives her a different opinion. And when I was young and stupid, then it became a contest. You don't trust me. You don't have any confidence in me. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and it was a big argument. Till I finally, finally, after years of Hate and discontent caused by my ignorance. I finally realized and I said, listen, I love you and I would do it your way if there was any way I can. But I know this is God and I'm, I'm going to have to do this. And if, if that upsets you, I'm really sorry, but I'm not doing this to upset you. This is how strongly I feel about it. Even when we agree on what needs to be done, we don't usually agree on when it should be done. flesh. There's never going to be a... Hear me. Hear me. Write this on your notes someplace. You may, have, you may already know this. There's never going to be a day God is not going to test your flesh to see if you will follow your flesh or Him. 
never going to be a day. You won't ever get spiritual enough. You won't ever pray and fast enough. You won't ever be holy enough. You will not ever be close enough to God that He will not test your flesh every day to see if you will please it or Him. Every day. Every day. Every day. The test will be different, but He will test your flesh every day. I succeeded today. That so far I have. Because I got a, a box of lemon-filled Krispy Kreme donuts sitting out in my RV. This morning I only ate two of them. Whew. It was tough. Because I, I wanted five or six of them, but I'm not trying to be facetious on the point. I'm just, I'm just trying to make a point and not trying to let it get too heavy in the wrong places. Go forward here. Okay. In the purity of the principle of soul winning, ultimately soul winning, winning souls and reaching the lost is as simple as one Christian with a Bible reaching out to a lost soul. True apostolic Christianity is simply summed up as loving Jesus and loving people. The two greatest commandments here are is the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Those are two greatest commandments. If I'm not fulfilling them, it doesn't matter whatever I, what other I's I'm dotting, T's I'm crossing. It does, you hear what I said? It doesn't really matter what other, what, if you're, if you're doing what everybody else thinks you ought to be doing. If we're not fulfilling these two great commandments, we are not pleasing God. Praise God. We are ordained of God. Wait, wait, let me go back here. Divine purpose for every true disciple is each disciple participating with Jesus in His mission. This is the divine purpose of God. The divine purpose of God. I'm to be His partner, His fellow laborer, His yoke mate. I am to be involved with Him. I'm supposed to be a part of Him. You'll probably hear me say this again this week. But there is a Pentecostal preposition that is not in the Bible. You will not find any place in the Bible where the Word of God says for us to live for God. Or work for God. That's the Pentecostal preposition, but it's not a biblical preposition. It's not in there. You can't find it anywhere. You can study Genesis to Revelation. You cannot find the concept of living for God. And working for God. It's not in there. And they went everywhere and preached. And the Lord went with them. Well technically. They went with the Lord. With. Through. But not for. The Lord lives through me. I don't live for Him. 
The Lord works through me. I don't work for Him. Semantics. About the same semantics as the two rims of the Grand Canyon. If you step from one across from one to the other without hitting bottom, that's how close those two concepts are. They're not anywhere near the same concept. They're not the same. We are ordained to be fruitful. We are commissioned to be fruitful. This past June the 5th, 39 years ago, no, 30, 41 years ago, this past June, I stood on the, the, the grass of the Naval Academy football stadium and uh, raised my right hand and the uh, Secretary of the Navy swore me in as an officer and a gentleman. You may not think I act like a gentleman, but according to Congress, I'm a gentleman. And you know how well they always get it right. I was commissioned that day to uphold and defend the Constitution. When I was called by God, brother, and commissioned by the Lord, I wasn't called of God to uphold and defend the manual. I was called of God to uphold and defend the Bible. I was called to uphold and defend the Word of God. To earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered for the saints. To the saints. I was called of God. I was commissioned. The prefix C-O-M means with. And of course we know what mission is. Commission means you are with mission. It's not your mission. When you're commissioned, it's somebody else's mission. It is the great commission. It's not my plan. It's not your plan. It's not the UPCI's plan. You're not in your city because somebody commission you to go there uh, organizationally. If you're not called of God to your city, you're never going to stay through the trials and the battles that are coming. It's not going to happen. Churches don't get built easily. It takes blood, sweat, and tears every day. There's never an easy day. There are no easy days. There's some up days and a lot of down days. But if you're called of God, there's no choice. My dad, going to the Navy the day after Pearl Harbor, he spent 30 years in the Navy, worked his way up from a seaman recruit to a full Navy commander, which would be an 06... 05. It's as high as a Mustang officer can go. That means you work your way up to the right. Very, 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 very few make full 06 colonels or captains. Navy is a captain. Army, Air Force, Marines would be a colonel. My childhood was spent standing on runways and piers, either waiting for him to leave or waiting for him to come home. A lot of people resent their parents because of, of being absentee like that. I never one time resented my dad for it. I missed him terribly. 
But I never resented him. Because I knew he wasn't leaving because he didn't want to be with us. He wasn't leaving because he didn't want me. He didn't want to be with me. But he had a commission. And that commission was a priority in his life. That called him to do things that isn't what I wanted him to do. And it wasn't what he wanted to do. But that's what he was called to do. If I don't get that. If that doesn't happen in here. We're not called to build a social club. We're not called to build a nice group of people. We're not called to build a crowd and a number. We are called of God to be mouthpieces for the Lord. I've never preached on this before. One of these days I'm going to. Moses was complaining to God about why he couldn't do the stuff God was calling him to do. Finally the Lord said, okay, okay. I'm going to give you Aaron. Listen to this. He said, and you will be as a God to Aaron. What do you mean by that? He meant that Aaron had no authority to speak anything he thought at all. Aaron was only a mouthpiece for Moses. He could not express his feelings. He, Aaron was not, it was not Aaron's role to speak his feelings, to give his thoughts, his opinions, or what he thought ought to be. He, he, that was not his call. Moses was his God in the sense that he had a responsibility to communicate to the people everything Moses thought, felt, said. We are not called to be Moses. We are called to be errands. How many times has the Lord not been able to accomplish what He wanted to accomplish because Aaron wanted to short, short circuit the communication between him and God, him and his people, because Aaron wanted to tell him what he thought. Aaron wanted to tell him how he felt. Aaron wanted to express his opinions. That's all I am. I'm not the head of anybody. I'm a neck. The ministry is not a head. There's only one head. And that's Christ. The only thing the ministry does is connect the head to the body. That's what the neck does. That's all the neck does. Everything that, that comes in through the head flows through the neck to the body. Everything that the body needs to communicate to the head flows through the neck. It all goes this way through the neck. But the neck is just the neck. It's a, it's a connector. It's a conduit. It's not the head. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You want to see mighty revival in your city? Get, a, get that revelation and live it. Have you studied the life of Jesus from this perspective? In my study, I haven't found one day in the life of Jesus he acted like he was trying to save the world. 
Not one day. Not one day. Not one day in his life did he act like he felt the pressure of trying to save the whole world. Do you know what he did every day? He started each day trying to find the will of the Father and yielding himself to whatever the Father wanted done. End of story. And you know how Jesus defined his success? Not by the size of the crowds, because one miracle could bring a big crowd, and one word from him could send them all away because they didn't like what he said. In fact, he turned to them one day and said, are you going to leave too? To the point of saying, in so many words to me, if you don't like what I said, there's a door too. This is truth. This is the way it is. This is what the Father said for me to say. Because this was the faith of Jesus. Whatever he saw the Father do, that's what he did. And whatever the Father taught him to say or instructed him to say, that's what he said. He didn't add to it. He didn't take away from it. Brother right, that's, that's pretty simple. Yeah. Do you think he needs my intellect? You think he needs my talents? You think he needs my power? All he needs is conduit. A yielded, submitted, willing conduit. And every bit of frustration I face, I'm, I'm reminding you again, been there. One, that's one of the reasons why I believe so strongly this multiple congregation concept. These aren't daughter works we have. They're congregations. We're a multiple congregation church. You know why I believe in that? Because it allows me to constantly stay in touch with home missions. We're all the time trying to find the new location. And, and, and in the will of God, find the person that God's talking to for that new location so that we can start that new group in this place and that place. Because you know something? My vision for a revival will never be able to fit in any building that we could ever afford to build. FedEx Field is about 20 minutes from us where the Redskins play. It holds 90-something thousand people, not counting how many you could put on the field. If you put a roof over that, you say, wow, what a church that would be. Wouldn't that be awesome? Really? Awesome? In a city of six million. 100,000 people, that's enough? Of course it's not. So you're not going to put it in a building. If your vision can fit, put it, can fit in a building, you didn't get it from God. If your faith, if your faith can be fulfilled by filling up a building, you didn't get that faith from God. When he hung on the cross, exposed in front of God to everybody, when the man Christ Jesus hung on the cross with his arms spread out and the nails to his, his hands and his feet, he was hung out in front of the world, in front of all mankind, not behind the doors in some building someplace. I believe every farm needs a barn. But any good farmer knows the barn is only a support place. It has nothing to do with the field and the crop. What do you have? A barn mentality or a field mentality? 
Whichever one of those you've got is determining a whole lot about the results you're having right now. You have a barn mentality or a field mentality? Let's see if we can get this barn all fixed up. Maybe the grain will get planted on its own. And then it'll want to come in, come in out of the field so badly that the grain just, it just won't be able to, it won't be able to help itself. It'll, it'll just, just get off those stalks out there in the field and just rush into this barn on its own because we have such an awesome barn! And if we can get the cows and the chickens and everybody to sing the same song, get them in the same tune, and, and, and if we can get them, if we can get them some special training so they sound good, then 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 maybe the corn, the ears of corn, will just that, that we, we look out and see them just walking down the, the road between the stalks, and here they come. We won't have to do anything. We just get the barn fixed up good enough. They'll come running. It sounds silly when you put it that way, doesn't it? But that's how we do it. Silly as it sounds. And we wonder why it's not working. Let's, let's breathe a minute. <laughs> All that stuff was minor. Let me say this. This is major. Show me anywhere in the Bible where you build a church with good preaching. Chapter and verse 3. That if I could just preach better. If I can write it out perfectly and learn how to speak it perfectly, I'll fill the building. If we sing better, if our building would look better, we'll grow. <laughs> Jesus, I, there's a verse. Let me quote that verse for you. The barn is the world. Isn't that, isn't that what the scripture says? The barn is the world? Oh, I misquoted it. The field is the world. Or how about this? The world is the field. I can stop right here right now. And if you would take that one thought home and look at everything you do in the light of that concept, and it would change everything you're doing. You've got good singing? What's it doing stuck inside a building? You know how many malls would let you sing in them? You know how many parks there are that have electricity? You can get a permit to sing out there? If you've got good singing, why aren't you using it? Oh, well, we use it to get into the presence of God. No, you use it to entertain. That's why you sing songs that nobody knows, so they can just sit and listen. I 
don't try to get in the presence of God. We're trying to entertain. That's what you do when you entertain. People don't participate. You want people to participate. You've got to be doing something that they know how to do. You know, there's the old song. And then there's the newer old song. And now there's the old new songs. And then there's the the current new songs. And then there's all the, all these folks out there trying to find the newer new songs. They're beautiful. I love them. Well, what's the deal? What? You, you mean I can really get into the presence of God easier singing one of them than Amazing Grace? And I'm, I, I, we sing them. I like them. I know them all. I like to jump up and bump one of the praise singers out of the way, grab a mic, because I love to sing. I'm serious. I love those songs. I love the tight harmony of them. You can harmonize so much better with one of those dudes than those old ones. Those old ones, those, that's simple harmony. You know, you've got to do all that intricate stuff, but that new stuff. But 99% of the people out there in your congregation, they can't sing it, because they couldn't sing the old stuff either. On tune. On teach you end. I got a question. What's your priority? That's what the Holy Ghost wants to know here today. What's your priority? Establishing a church that appeals to the eye of the, the brethren? Or are you trying to reach the lost? You may not have thought about this. Maybe you have. But uh, John Wesley is in our family tree. The majority of people who got the Holy Ghost at the beginning of the last century were a part of the holiness movement. The holiness movement came out of Methodism when Methodism adopted the halfway covenant because you couldn't be baptized without an experience with God. The kids being raised in the church weren't having an experience with God, so they weren't being allowed to be baptized, and so they were leaving the church, and so... Pressure came from the people onto the church and they changed the doctrine of the halfway covenant. If you were raised in the church, you could get baptized without having experience with God. That was an attempt to hold the youth. When that happened, the holiness, the people that really believed all this experience stuff, they left the Methodist church and became the holiness people. Who were the primary people that the Holy Ghost was poured out on. And John Wesley, of course, was the, the, the catalyst for the beginning of the holiness movement. Or the Methodist movement. He and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and the other members of the Holy Club at Oxford. Yeah. And John Wesley preached an average of five times a day. And 80 to 90 percent of those messages were outside, not inside. I don't do that. I'm sorry to tell you. I don't do that. I don't do that. I got some people that do, do but I, I, don't, I don't do it. I still got too much pride. Be honest with you. I got some people that don't, boy. Woo! They get out there and do it. It's not unusual for them to be calling somebody at 3 o'clock in the morning. 
one of the staff come down and baptize me. Right there on the street. Didn't bother. They believe in it. They're doing it. Better than I am. I'm not comfortable with it. Still too much pride. Of course, the bottom line is this. Another concept problem. The fivefold ministry according to Ephesians 4.11. Put it on the screen, would you please? Ephesians 4.11. Bottom line is, the fivefold ministry was not given to the world. The fivefold ministry was given to the church. You see that? Now go to verse 11, or 12, please. Ephesians 4.12. I call that King James Doctrine. It's not up there. Ephesians 4.12. King James Doctrine. The, the reason the Lord gave the five-fold ministry to the church, according to King James Doctrine, is for the perfecting of saints. That's one thing the five-fold ministry does. And then for the work of the ministry, that's another thing the five-fold ministry does. And for the edifying of the body of Christ, that's another thing the five-fold ministry does. Except that's King James Doctrine. That's not Bible Doctrine. You, you're not Mormon, right? You really don't believe that your favorite translation was divinely translated? Some of you gave me that look like you dare challenge the King James Bible. Then you must be an apostolic Mormon because that's what they believe. They believe their translation was divinely translated. Of course not of the Bible, but of the Book of Mormon. I thought we believed the Bible was divinely inspired in its original language. So it must be the spirit of tradition says, don't you dare challenge King James Version. So I won't, I'll just leave that there. Here's what the original Greek says, and if you want to verify this, you look at the Amplified, it's probably the closest to the original Greek. The fivefold ministry was given to the church for the full equipping of the saints that they may do the work of their ministry that the church may grow thereby. The church doesn't grow because of the fivefold ministry. It grows because the fivefold ministry fully equips the saints so that they do their ministry. So the church grows or is edified or increases because of the saints doing their ministry. Now let me just ask you a question. Considering that the word translated pastor, which the word is only found one time in all the King James Version. For those of you that are fans, and I use the King James, I read out the King James, I memorize King James, but it's not the Bible to me. The original languages are, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I, a good software program will help you out there. Okay? The word translated pastor, the only time the word pastor is found in the King James New Testament, is found 22 other times in the original Greek. All other 22 times, it's translated by the word shepherd. Or shepherds if it's in the plural. Shepherd. Now, who begets the sheep in the flock? Ah. Oh. So you don't believe in bestiality. 
Because believing that a church grows from a pulpit is bestiality. Is that too blunt? It's blunt enough to get your attention. It's bestiality. It's saying that the preacher is impregnating the saints with the Word and that's how the lambs are born. It's a damnable lie from the Catholic Church. It's amazing the people that don't believe in wearing wedding bands want to quote all that stuff that came from the Catholic Church and then all we practice all that other stuff from the Catholic Church, it's all okay. Better off wearing a wedding band and not having that other doctor. I took mine off this morning just so I could say that. It came from the Catholic Church. It came from the Catholic Church. The whole idea that it happens in the pulpit by a few holy people, special people, came from the Catholic Church. It's not Bible doctrine. If you want your church to grow, you've got to fully equip the saints. Police ran out on my car the other day. Actually, a couple of months ago now. Uh, I, I got this little, this smaller version of the, of the jacket. And I'm glad I got it when I got it. Because two months later, they came out with one with 100 more horsepower, and that really cranked me. It was probably really safe. Especially since I thought I was going to get to drive it, but I am, I'm driving the truck again. And, uh, that woman that he gave me, has now got the Jaguar. The woman he gave me. Yep. I've given up on it. She is so feminine that you put her behind the wheels of that 420 horsepower. Fasten your seatbelt. Here we go. <laughs> she loves the feel of that. Don't let some saint be next to her at a red light because she's going to run them. I'm telling you, right now she's going to. Yeah, she is. She is so feminine. She really is. Very, very feminine lady. So she gets behind the wheel. And now it, it, get out of the way. So anyway. We, I was in the parking lot of this shopping center over here the other day. Last night, I saw one exactly like mine. I, I, I left there so dissatisfied. It had better looking wheels than mine's got. Could you see? If I'm going to get a car, I want it to be absolutely... I, I don't even use the navigation system, but I'm not going to buy one without it. I've never used one yet. I don't use it. i got to know my own sense of direction. I don't need that stuff. And i got a phone. It, well, it's not with me. It's in the, the RV. But, you know, the point of it is, I don't, but I want it in case I ever feel like using it. I want it equipped to do that. I'm not the only one here like that. Some of you ladies are shaking your heads because there's not a man alive that doesn't buy a fully equipped car if he can afford it. Because boys don't ever grow up. No, absolutely not. You know, and any guy driving some sedate little deal, he's trying to crucify his flesh. 
but he's dreaming of something else. <laughs> Notice the ladies aren't laughing. It's all the guys laughing. They know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. I got a question. Why is it that I want a fully equipped computer? I can't stand it when the next operating system comes out. I can't stand it when something comes out you can have more RAM. I may never need the RAM, but if it's available, I want it. I may never fill up a 300 gig hard drive, but if I could give, get a, a terabyte one, I want it. I got a question. How can I feel that way about all this stuff? But I don't want a church that's just that fully equipped. You do all the baptizing? You do all the funerals? You do all the hospital visitations? You do all the marriages? Why? Because you're not equipping somebody else to participate? I'm glad I got you these notes so you know what I intended to teach. Why? Why? I have a leadership class that meets on Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. when I'm in town. I do it at 7 a.m. because ministry is very inconvenient and if the training is convenient, then they find out how inconvenient ministry is. They usually fail. But if you make the training really inconvenient, then the people show up that show up for that inconvenient training, they survive when leadership gets tough. Seriously. I average between about 150 and 220 on any given Saturday morning. And, uh, oh Lord. And I, I, I'm, I'm not any longer the pastor at uh, Antioch. I am the bishop. The word bishop literally means overseer. That's not an honorary title. It's not a complimentary term. It's not just something to give to an old man. I have groups of ministers that I oversee in that church. That's my job. I pastor the leaders. And my son David is the senior pastor. And he pastors the flock. And uh, I told that leadership meeting a couple of months ago, a couple of month, month or so ago, the greatest act of Christianity you will ever see demonstrated in my life. Ever. It's to see me sitting on a platform in a church service at Antioch and not in a pulpit. If I let somebody blow my brains out for the gospel today, that would be less of a demonstration of my Christianity than that one thing right there. Because it was God's time for me to do that. He had other things for me to do. As well as I couldn't carry the day-to-day -day responsibility and load for the flock, for the people, and take the structure to the place God wanted to go so that He could fulfill His promises. So I had to let that go, which means I don't hardly ever preach in Antioch pulpit anymore. I can preach anytime I want. But if I decide to get up there because I feel like it, instead of God telling me to, not good. So, not good. So to sit there and not participate in the service at all, just sit there. 
in that place that has defined to, to me who I am all these years. This is my call. This is who I am. This is what I said to do. That is the greatest act of Christianity I possibly am capable of demonstrating. Why? Because God's not going to let anybody's fingerprints be the sole fingerprints of what He's going to do in any place, any church, any situation. And as long as only one set of fingerprints are involved, there is a divine limitation on everything God can do. Now, when you first start out, you cannot possibly be a, a shepherd. When you start a church, you can't be a shepherd because there's no sheep to shepherd. So everybody that starts a church starts all out as a farmer, a grain farmer. That's the metaphor. That's the example, the principle. And all of that's involved. And you are involved not as a pastor, but as the overseer of a grain harvest. Now, when that harvest is producing, now you got some sheep. The role of the head guy's got to change. Somebody else has got to be trained to continue to focus on the field, on the harvest. It is now the responsibility of the head guy to become the shepherd, to oversee the sheep, to equip the sheep, prepare the sheep, train the sheep, take care of the sheep. I've performed a lot of weddings in my lifetime. I've never one time told anybody. I, 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 I've had them make vows, go be committed to one another, but I've never one time required them to make a vow that they go produce children. Why? Because if they live by those vows and that relationship grows, all things being equal, everybody being healthy, babies are automatic. That's the role of a shepherd, is to keep that atmosphere growing, to keep it all there, to keep those sheep well taken care of and train them and equip them, and then the, the babies will be automatic. Automatic. And how do you do that? What percentage in your church, regardless of its size right now, what's the ratio between teaching and preaching? That determines whether you're equipping or not. It is, by definition, impossible to equip people through preaching. By definition, impossible to equip people through preaching. It is by definition impossible to equip people through preaching. It is by definition impossible to equip people through preaching. The definition of a disciple is a taught or trained one. You can do neither teaching nor training. Preaching. Now in the notes, if you care to check them sometime, read through them, you'll find that the word preach is almost always directly connected to spreading the gospel seed. You will not find very often the ministry of preaching done to believers. In fact, Jesus Himself rarely, it's very difficult to find any situation where Jesus was referred to as preaching or as a preacher. 
about one of the only ones I can even think of is, is uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where he's actually reading Isaiah 61 and 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. To proclaim the good news to those who are empty of all spirit. Which it actually is an evangelistic thing. The problem is, we know if we don't preach, we don't keep people entertained enough, they don't come. Right. In other words, you're not letting the Holy Ghost sift the crowd. You're not letting the Lord use the Word to separate the chaff from the wheat. You're not letting the Lord use the Word to, de to determine who is hearing and who is not hearing. John the Baptist preached to crowds. Jesus taught the multitude. Jesus was a teacher. He was not a preacher. Preaching is absolutely essential. For reaching the lost. Teaching is absolutely essential. For perfecting or equipping the saints. We are a preaching organization. Our meetings are preaching meetings. We rate people on their ability to preach. We determine the popularity of ministers on their ability to Preach. That's why at camp, we relegate the old guy, the dry old guy to the daytime and the fiery guy at night. We tell the importance because we know the crowd is going to be smaller in the daytime. So these people will put up with it, but the night crowd's not going to put up with it. We, we, we express all of these things we do demonstrate our priorities. They, they say, they say really how much we believe the Bible. I'm not minimizing preaching. I'm just simply saying it's being misused biblically. For instance, <laughs> there's no difference between the interpretation of tongues and prophecy. The gift of prophecy. There's no difference at all. It's just that if there are sinners present, the gift of tongues is the prelude to interpretation of tongues, which is identical to prophecy. But you use the gift of tongues when there are unbelievers present. So you don't, you, you don't need the gift of tongues if it's just a house full of believers. You can just prophesy. But what do we do? Yeah. Well, I guess either the Holy Ghost or our own faith tells us we believe most everybody present here is unbeliever because we all we can't have any prophecy with that tongue. We almost never have any prophecy with that tongue. So we do the exactly same thing with preaching. We preach the believers. Now, you've got to be willing to be smaller before you can be bigger. 
You've got to be willing for the Lord to sift the crowd so you can find out who's really with you, who wants to be trained, who wants to be equipped, who wants to be involved. And as long as they're all entertained, they're going to stick around and sit there and dare you not to preach something they don't like. You know it's true. It's absolutely the truth. They're going to sit there with their attitude and spirit and say, keep entertaining me, but the moment you expect of me something I don't want to do, I'm out of here and I'm taking my tithe with me. That's the threat. And that's why we don't grow. Because we let the pew manipulate the neck. We let the pew put a rope around the neck and choke off the air. I'm not going to apologize. That's why you got the notes. But I'm going to, I want to briefly in my last 50 minutes here just give you a couple of very important points. Again, I've been in Pentecost all my life. We use terms interchangeably. They're not interchangeable. They're not interchangeable. There's no way you can possibly use them interchangeably. Uh, revival. Uh, Evangelism and harvest. These are not interchangeable terms. They are not synonymous terms. They are three very distinct things. They're not even the same thing. If I said to you, sowing, watering, and reaping are synonymous terms, is there anybody here who would agree with me? There's not anybody in this building who would, who would, who would agree with the statement, sowing, watering, and reaping are synonymous terms. But most of us have used interchangeably evangelism, revival, and harvest interchangeably. They are no more interchangeable than sowing, water, and reaping. In fact, they are synonymous to sowing, water, and reaping. Evangelism is sowing, revival is watering, and harvest is reaping. People getting the Holy Ghost is harvest. The only people getting the Holy Ghost that's a part of revival is backsliders. The only people that, the only backslider, or the only person that gets the Holy Ghost as a result of revival Biblical revival, used in a biblical context, is a backslider. Because the word revive, by definition, means to bring back to life again. You cannot revive something that's never been alive. So therefore, people getting the Holy Ghost that are sinners don't get it as a result of revival. Now, ain't God good? He, he just, he just, just so often just completely ignores the fact that we don't have a clue. And he gives people out of mercy and grace the Holy Ghost, even though I had an old prophet of God say to me years ago, he said, don't let people change the course of the Spirit in a service until the Lord's ready to change. I looked at him funny, so he obviously knew he needed to explain. He said, if you're, tr- if you're believing that God's wanting to fill people with the Holy Ghost at, at this point, and you got an altar filled with people of sinners needing the Holy Ghost, don't let somebody come up to you and say, Pastor, I'm sick. Would you pray for me? Don't shift the spirit. You'll lose the other. You say, can't God do anything? Yes, He can. He can. But He's the one directing us. And when the flow's going that way, you go that way. Now he'll shift it. A lot of times in the service, it starts out with healing. That's why we almost never do prayer requests. 
Because you're missing too big an opportunity. We call it burden bearing. We'll, we'll do it a couple different ways. Sometimes we'll have people stand where they are or we'll have them come to the front. But it's what we'll do. We'll say, uh, okay, if you have a need, any kind of need here tonight, spiritual, financial, family, emotional, job, whatever it is, any kind of need you have, we want you to come to the front or stand where you are, one or the other, and, and allow us to pray for you. Because the Bible says for us to bear one another's burdens and to pray one for another. And so if you're sick or whatever this is, whatever your need is, we're going to pray for those needs right now. And if you know somebody that's not here and you want to stand in for them, then you can be practical. You have any idea how many people got involved this year before we even got to do anything like that? Sinners. They come and they come down front. And you, you're not shifting it. You're praying for the need. But if you're doing that, people, people begin to be touched. All of a sudden, you pick up on it. It begins to shift. It's just all by itself. It begins to shift. And if you listen to it, you flow with it, it shifts. And the next thing you know, they start getting hold of it. Because you discern the flow of the Spirit. You, you, you're not trying to dot the I's in a program. You can't program God. You know one of the terms I've hated all my life in Pentecost? Divine interruption. You know how damning that is? That we have to say that God has to interrupt what we're doing to do what He wants to do? Well, we had a divine interruption tonight. I wouldn't go telling anybody. I wouldn't tell anybody you had a divine interruption. Because you just, you just, you just condemned yourself. Because you just said that God had to interrupt your plan to do what He was wanting to do. Divine interruption. Or how about this one? Oh, we had a move of God tonight. Is that unusual? Really, is that unusual? Now this man here, he and I, we're on the same page with this one. Woo, buddy! If it's all locked down, ain't nothing happening. You can forget dismissing this service because it's not being dismissed, so there's a break. Isn't that right? If you've got to scream and holler and walk the back of the pew, if you've got to cry and weep and beg, if you've got to threaten, it doesn't matter what you've got to do. If you've got to sing till they can't even, they, they can't, don't have any spit left in their mouth. Whatever you've got to do, you can't let that service stop bound. You can't dismiss that thing bound. You can't dismiss it bound. Because the next time you come, it'll be more bound when you start. And if you dismiss that one bound, you're dead before you start. There's got to be something inside here that says it has got to happen and it's going to happen tonight. And if it doesn't happen, it's not going to be God's fault. It's not make, it's not making God do anything. It's understanding He wants to do it if we get in tune. That He wants to do it if we just flow with Him. He wants to do it. So in water and reef. Evangelism, the Bible, part. You cannot violate these things. Now there may, there's going to be a day, I believe it, Amos 9.13 says there's going to be a day we're going to have rapid multiple harvests where the plowman's going to want to take the reapers 
the treader of grapes and so sick. But we're not there yet. And there's no church that's sowing seed and reaping a harvest simultaneously. There are seasons in a church just like there are seasons. And if you're trying to sow seed, you're not trying to pay, pay people through the Holy Ghost. You're trying to get seed in the ground. No farmer goes out today, scatters some seed, and as soon as he gets his bag empty, he turns around and says, okay, I got my sickle ready here. Let's see now what's ready to be reaped. Well, there's nothing happening. I'm failing. All this natural stuff in the book was created by God to teach us stuff. That's what it's in there for. And if I don't believe it, and I don't let it affect the way I think, and my expectations, and my faith, then, then I'm going to live in constant frustration. There's got to be seasons. Seasons. There's got to be a time we do everything we can do to sow seeds. Now let me tell you about seeds. Seeds are an awesome thing. Technically, I could go out here and hire a bunch of crackheads and put tracks on windshields and Walmart, on all these parking lots around all these shopping centers. And people could get saved. Because the power in the sowing is not the vehicle, it's the seed. The power's in the seed. There is no spirituality you can get little kids. Set up a lemonade stand. Selling lemons today. Give, and giving out tracts. They don't have to be able to quote any scripture. And, and, and it's potentially possible for people to get saved from that. Not, not, they're not going to come to church that day. But there's a seed being sown. There's a seed sown. We've got to sow seed. And where do you sow seed? Well, let me tell you how we sow seed. We, we issue wheelbarrows to everybody. We say, okay now, we're going to sow some seed here next Sunday night. So I want everybody to bring your wheelbarrow in here on Sunday night, into the barn, filled up with some seed. Ready? Okay. All right. Everybody. Uh, no, no, no. There's one way traffic pattern here. Everybody get out with their wheelbarrow. It's okay. And Sunday night, here, here comes the back door. People come participating. They got a whole, they got a wheelbarrow full of dirt and others. They got a little bit of dirt. And we bring it in here and we dump the wheelbarrow over in our barn. The preacher gets up there. He sows some seed if he can reach it. Do as many piles of dirt as you can. And then we get the shovels out. And we dig that seed, that, all that dirt with that little bit of seed in it. Put it back in our wheelbarrow. And say, okay, now take that back where it was and dump it out. And hopefully we'll have a harvest. I wonder how long you could stay in the farming business doing it like this. I wonder how long. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. You already feel bad. Every every year we come and home missionaries they come in here. Well, some of you. You're uncomfortable with us calling you a home missionary because you're a pastor of a particular status. 
through your four or five years or so, you know your heart of hearts according to the manual. You are no longer homestead. Who says that? Where's that chapter from? Where was the deadline on how long the, the allies could stay on the beach in Normandy before they had to get back on the ship? And if Rommel hadn't totally missed all the signals and had gone home to Germany, uh, to Berlin, to see his family because he was so sure the weather was so bad there was no invasion coming, if he'd have been on, 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 on site and released those panzer divisions in reserve, they would have been driven back into the sea. It was a victory when they scaled those bluffs, even at the expense of all those lives. It was a victory. But it's frustration. You know, the, the, the word you don't want to hear anybody ask is how many of you are And then, oh, this one really gets you. And how long have you been there? Uh, you know, and, and, and before you learn better, you try to explain. And, and you... And you get this glazed look in their eyes and you, they realize, you realize they don't really want to know that. Because there's no explanation that's going to satisfy. The problem is, see, after all these years of bringing these home missionaries in here, frustration is the, it's the order of the day. That's the order. I'm not trying to make you frustrated. I want you to understand why you are frustrated. It, good people, sincere people, but it doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how sincere you try. If you're doing stuff traditionally Pentecostal way and not doing it biblically, God blesses His way. You know what some of us do? And I, I did it for years. I get over here with my plan, out here in this desert. It's a desert. And I'm out in the middle of this desert. And I come up with a plan for growing crops in this desert. And now I'm going to pray, Oh God, send the rain and bless my plan. Oh God, send the rain and bless my plan. Just a little bit over there. It's pouring rain. Just pouring rain. But I'm not going over there and being a part of that. I'm not talking about location. Talking about will here in my own way. My way, I'm in this desert and I got this plan that makes it make it happen. I want God to do it my way right now. I don't ever have to ask God to bless His plan. If it's His plan, He's going to bless it. I don't ever have to ask God to bless His plan. The question is. Do I want him to bless my plan? Or I just want to, I want to leave the frustration and find his plan and do it his way. Now, I said this earlier and I want you to hear me, please. You've got to quit calling your attendance the church. Right now, 
this past Sunday we had 1428. I wasn't home. None of my family was. We were in Florida seeing my mother for a couple days before coming here. We had 1428. Sunday night, I think they had about 550. You're kidding. No, no, you're missing the point. The differentiation between what I'm running on Sunday morning and Sunday night, that's my sown field. This is how much harvest I can expect as soon as it's right. See, there's three classes of people. Those that were not, re- well, those that were not reaching at all. Those that we're ministering to. And then those that we're reaching. And so therefore, when I'm counting, and I do count, because what you don't measure doesn't get done. If you don't know how, want to know how you're doing, how many Bible studies are being taught, how many tracts are being passed out, uh, how many people, people's lives are being touched, if you don't want to know that, you don't keep track of that? Then it's easy to convince yourself you're doing something you're not doing. Brother Cornwell, uh, I don't know if he told it last night. He tell you about that last deal where they sent all those flyers out. Did you get that? What was it? Two hundred fifty thousand flyers, something like that. And they had what? Was it two hundred new families visit? Something like that. Wait, wait, wait. Two hundred fifty thousand flyers they sent to home, and they only had only had only. 200 new families. They had 100 or so get the Holy Ghost. What was it? 80. 80 got the Holy Ghost done. Oh, so the seed's still producing. Ah. Oh. You say, why? Well, you know what? I don't have the money to do that. I don't have the money to do that. I, I'm, that's not a nice little statement. I don't have the money to do that. Okay? I'm glad he does. But his bill is paid for it. I mean, I don't even know how to begin to pay it. I don't have the money to do that. But I can do other stuff. I mean, you, you, you can get, we, we, we can get 10,000 colored cards printed up online, sent out to this company online, for about $250. $250? 10,000? One friend of mine calls them seed cards. And he, and everybody wants to show up. He doesn't care what they, how they're dressed, who they are. He don't care if they're distant or saved. Doesn't make any difference. If they're willing to show out, they go out on Saturday mornings and put seed cards on doors in the houses. And they count how many seed cards they pass out every month. They're not knocking on the door. They just got this really nice looking seed card. Then they put it out there. That's a waste of time. It's sowing seed. It's sowing seed. It's easy to condemn that then. Okay, let's turn to him number 273. Okay, let's all stand. We're going to do the same old thing again and wait for God to bless. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be offensive. But show me in the book how you reach the world like that. The field is the world. The barn is not the field. You got to do something out there. You got to get out there someplace. 
You got to do it. Are you ready? Oh, boy. Woo. I'm about to really get out there now. We have, occasionally, we have block parties. We give, we go to Walmart, buy some hamburgers, hot dogs and some rolls, buy some sodas. Sometimes we'll take an offering to pay for the expenses. And then we'll, we'll go out to some street corner, give away free hamburgers and hot dogs. And, and, and everybody wants to sign up for an iPod. We give away an iPod. We get all those names. And then the, the saints work the crowds, shaking hands, smiling at people, being really nice. Telling them who we are. And that we're just out here. Let me, let me tell you something. Do you know what it does when you're in a community and you're giving away a hot dog or a hamburger? This world believes the church has nothing but their hand out. And when you're in a situation where you're giving them something without asking for anything, it changes the whole attitude. Now, these people are different. This might be the kind of church I'd like to go to. They're not out here with buckets standing on the street corner asking for a donation for their latest little project. They're out here. They're, they're, it may not be the best hamburger I've ever eaten, but it, they're giving it to me. It may not be an all-beef hot dog. I may go home with indigestion from this hot dog. But somebody went to the trouble and cooked it and gave it to me. You say, oh, that's no big deal. Really? Let me tell you about one of our congregations. Uh, Carlos Williams is, works in an IT company downtown D.C. His wife has a law degree. Her dad is a doctor. Mother's a doctor. Uh, they have six kids. Their uh, oldest one is about 10 or 11, I think. Six kids. At least one set of twins in there. Carlos developed his preaching ministry in our prison services. He never one time ever preached in our church pulpit. He also was, uh, he and another guy started a Bible study for homeless guys in a McDonald's across the street from the field where they lived. And every Wednesday night, they'd invite those guys to McDonald's and buy them hamburgers and hot uh, hamburgers and Cokes. And then they'd sit around and teach them the Bible. The manager found out what they were doing, said, I can't let you do that here. If you're going to, if you're going to teach the Bible to these guys, then I'm supplying the hamburger. That's true. That Bible study is still going on right now. Still going on. That was his experience. Student of the Word of God, all of his preaching took place in, a, in jail cells, prison, prison, and his and his evangelism took place. Evangelism experience with teaching Bible studies, homeless guys in a McDonald's. Two years ago, I felt it. He felt it. We sent him downtown D.C. to start our first congregation. D.C. D.C.'s thirty minutes from our building. I sent one family with him and two teenagers. Teenagers were there as much to help take care of the six kids 
as anything else. They got out there and they started. And not only that, oh, by the way, they went to the Trinidad section of D.C., which you got the highest murder rate in all of Washington, D.C. In fact, it got so bad last summer that they put up roadblocks and you couldn't even get into the neighborhood unless, unless you had a specific reason. They had a beautiful house in the suburb. They sold their house. Moved in the Trinidad section. Brought their six kids into the Trinidad section of D.C. in a townhouse. Walked those streets. They'd stand out there giving away bottles of water. Or they had some block parties. Cooked hamburgers and hot dogs. Gave away the community. Last year before school, they went out to uh, the dollar store, wherever it was, and they bought some little bags and they, and they put, they bought pencils and erasers and paper and, and scissors and other little supplies. And they started walking the streets of Trinidad, giving those away to the kids as going back to school gifts. You may not follow the Washington Post, but the Washington Post, the Washington Post, heard about it. His picture, baptizing his son in our baptismal bus parked on the curb in Trinidad, was front page Washington Post with a whole bunch of other pictures of this apostolic preacher and they told about all this stuff that they were doing, giving to the community, giving to the community. You don't think the world takes notice when we get out of the barn? You don't think the world is impacted when we get out of the barn? Well, do you preach to those people? No, not like you think. Be real nice to them, give them some tracts, talk to the ones you can feel some openness to, witness to them. No high pressure, no hard sell, just sowing seed. Understanding, this isn't harvest time, this is seed sowing time. He's putting some seed out there. But it looks like a waste of money. It always looks like a waste of money when you take good seed you can make into flour and make bread out of it and eat. When you throw it out there on the ground, that looks like a waste of money. That looks like a waste of good food. When you take good grains of wheat and scatter on the ground, that looks like a waste! Oh, but in a few months, when you get some sprouts, and then a few months after that, that golden grain stand up there waiting to be reaped. And you reap that and you made some good money. Plus you got more bread to eat than you could have had if you'd have kept it. Here's one. Oh, I know there's a lot of people got involved in bus ministry to boost their numbers. But you don't stay involved with bus ministry to boost numbers. There are kids out there That if you don't, if we don't reach them, if society doesn't reach them, and society has no ability to do it, if we don't reach them at 8, 10, 11, 12, it's over with. Because they have no hope. Who's supposed to be given hope? But they tear up our building. Your building's too important. They're hard to handle. Of course they're hard to handle. They've been raised in sin. I thought that's what we were supposed to be doing. Oh, you're just pumping your numbers up. No, I'm counting the number of people we're ministering to. Because real ministry 
isn't about dealing with the people who can line your pocket. Real ministry. Luke 14 ministry. Three types of evangelism. Invitation evangelism, need meeting evangelism, compelling evangelism. Which one of those three do you think 99.9% .9 of the United Pentecostal Church uses if they use anything? Invitation evangelism. And who do we invite? Those that's got so much money they can buy land they haven't even seen. Those that have a business going so good they, they had to buy oxen they didn't have time to prove them. And those that are so family oriented won't ever need any counseling. Family's ahead of everything including God. And that's who we reach for in invitation evangelism. And what's the biblical results of invitation evangelism? That's why we're frustrated. That's why we're frustrated. Hey! Oh, they should have already got there. I got a couple of drug dealers just showed up at your airport. I got one male jiggler just showed up at your airport. I got a couple of guys show up that I don't even know how many kids they had out of wedlock. Of course, you couldn't pick them out. And such were some of you. Oh, yeah. And such were some of you. You see, that's our problem. The only time you can reach the people we normally target with invitation evangelism it's when the world's, their world is shaking. In the back of your notes, you're going to see a, a, a rating in there by a psychologist uh, that, that talks about the, 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 the amounts of stress that life-changing events happen to people's lives. And, and either, either you have to reach somebody with one of those higher, the more stressful events in their life when they're going through that, or you have to reach them when they've got a combination of those things and the numbers add up to a higher number. You're never going to reach those other kind of people until their worlds come apart. We played golf yesterday on a, on, on a nice country club in this area. It was amazing the number of nice houses sitting empty. You couldn't reach those people while they were paying their bills, had money, and could buy, do anything you wanted to. All those folks we haven't been able to reach, this is our best opportunity to reach it. We need to qu quit complaining about the economy. This is God trying to save some people's souls. Absolutely. But the bottom line, the ones he, he sent them to reach, He sent them to invite, but those people, they don't have any problem with unity like the church does without even talking about it. With one consent, they began to make excuses. You know what would happen if you if you could get the church with one consent to say let's reach the lost? No, no, no. The world is unity is easy for the world. They come together instantly. We're not interested. Too busy. They don't have a problem getting in unity. We have a problem getting the church moving the same direction. So he sent them to go out and reach the halt, the blind, the lame. In other words, 
Go reach those that know they have a need and don't know where to turn. You can't build a church on that riffraff. I got a question. Does God put a value on a soul? Does he put a value on one soul over another? I, I should have asked the question probably. No, he doesn't. So that little eight-year-old that's already seen people shooting drugs in a project someplace, that nobody's given him any hope. He doesn't see any way out. He doesn't, maybe he doesn't even know who his daddy is. Did Jesus die for that little eight-year-old boy? Did Jesus die for that boy? That homeless guy on the street that you can't stand the smell of. Our, our, uh, our folks, we don't call them homeless. We call them livers out of address. I don't know if that's less offensive or not. But our guys, we run a van every service. Every service we run a van for all, all we collect. <laughs> and our guy, when he gets there with that van with those guys, he doesn't sit them in the back corner so they're not offensive to anybody. He prays them right down front, sits them right down right in front of God and everybody. Ever serve. And then I sit and watch and see how the saints treat them. I have a really good memory bank. I pay attention to that stuff. You learn a lot just by watching. Homeless. They can't do anything. They can't do anything. We got this one guy named Frank. Uh, our biggest problem is we don't have any kind of shelter. We have no place to put these. But we, we feed them and make sure they're clothed, give them a chance to have showers, bring them to church. And we were doing some construction not too long ago. This one guy, Frank, he came there. He worked and worked and worked and worked. He was there before anybody else left after everybody else. It was like, couldn't even imagine not being a part of it. Still living in a tent. I'm ashamed to say. Comes to service every service. You don't ever, he doesn't have any kind of, he cleans himself up, comes to participate. If you walked in our building, you wouldn't know who he is. Half our folks don't even know he's homeless. But God's doing some work. It's beginning to come around. He's beginning to believe that he can function again. Are you standing at the back door, figuratively or otherwise, sifting the crowd before they have a chance to get in your building? Do you have nice seats with footrests for those of value, with, with income and all of that? While you tell the others, just stand in the back. Don't get too close to our honored guests here. Is that what the Messiah would do? Hear me. If we begin to think with the mind of Christ and look at things the way Jesus looks at them, it will change everything. I've heard Brother Matt Maddox say it many times. I've heard this man say it many times. If we reach the people and love on the people that nobody wants, God will give us the people that everybody wants. That's not the motive. 
It's just the way God is. It's the way he is. But, but it's just too much of an invest of my time. Your time? You didn't even have any time without Jesus Christ. It's his blood, not yours. It's his life, not yours. He, he bought it already with his own blood. And then finally, that's need meeting evangelism. Finding a need meeting. Getting people to come. There's, there's as many different possibilities of that as you've got imagination. Just, just, just letting it. You know, and, and I stopped several years ago. Stop trying to get a vision and then get people on board with my vision to do it. I, 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 the Lord showed me I was a facilitator. That He was already giving people a burden for something. And that if I would help them discover what, what, the, what God was doing in their life, and then I would help facilitate that. I had a burden for the Spanish for 10 years before God ever gave me a man who spoke Spanish. I couldn't make that happen. I let God do it. I got a guy that's been doing our prison for 19 years. I don't ever, I, not one time, Brother Dylan, do I have to say, did, the, did that prison service get handled last night? I don't even know who's working with them. I don't even know when their services are. I know they have eight a week. I don't even know who's doing all that. Why? Because there's a man with a burden. And I'm just making it possible for him to do his burden. It's his burden. I don't have to motivate him to do his burden. You have to constantly ride people to do your burden. You help people find out what their place is in the kingdom of God. What their burden is. And then help make that burden happen. You don't have to motivate people to do that. You know what? Not a whole lot of people feel comfortable sitting in some million dollar house teaching a Bible study to people that's all got doctors. That doesn't make people bad because they can't do that or don't feel comfortable with that. And, and, and we don't put them down for that. Help them find their place where they're comfortable, where their talents can be used. Help them find their burden and then facilitate that burden. Meet needs, meet needs, meet needs. And then finally, when the house was, when people, the need, people needs had come, but the house wasn't full, Jesus said, now, I want you to feed the bushes. You ready? And he said, compel them to come in. Now that word in the Greek, compel, literally means to violently force somebody to come. Now we know the Lord is not telling us to use violence. To get people to the house of God. So that word compel has got to be something else. It's got to mean in that context. To somehow to motivate somebody to do something. They would normally do on their own. Ooh boy. Such as. A $50 gift card from Walmart. That we're going to draw the name out of the hat. You say, boy, might as well have bingo. No, we're not trying to raise money. We're trying to sow seed. 
We're trying to make contacts. Compel, whatever. I tell you what. Some of the biggest, over the years, the three biggest Sundays we've ever had. You know what we gave away? Goldfish. Every kid 12 and under came to church that Sunday. We gave them a goldfish. You can get them online for six cents a piece. We bought little styrofoam cups, got plastic lids, put some holes in it. The cups cost more than the goldfish. Let me tell you something. You think that, you think that's stupid. I know, because I thought it was stupid too. You want me to do what, God? Let me tell you something. We had people, well to do people. Mama, elbowing, shouldering people out of the way to make sure their kid got this six cent goldfish. You say, that doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't. You're not the creator. You didn't design people like this. He's the one that knows. Well, that, that's just against my principle. Yes, I know. I've been there. I, you know, I got so, so caught up in the purity of the principle people were going to hell. Because I wanted everybody to come. Because they wanted Jesus as much as me. How can they want something they don't even know about? They've never tasted. I promise you today, I can almost assure every one of you would visit Annapolis. All I'd have to do is stand here today and hold in my hand a chocolate-covered donut from Carlson's. You never heard of it. Because we don't share that with the rest of the world. They are local. I've been all over the place, never tasted anything like it. Preacher's coming, so I'm going to take you. Get you the best on it. Oh, you got an ice cream. Tell me what you think after you had it. You're right. Best donut I've ever had. I don't know how they do it. But the, the donut itself is not, there's no glaze on it. It's not cheap like Krispy Kreme does where they make the glaze when you put some chocolate on it. This is just, just and, it's, and it's light. It's not heavy. It's not overly greasy. It's just sweet. And the chocolate is phenomenal. And it's coated on half of it, all the way around the top half of that donut. And let me tell you something right now. You hear me? You hear me. You have to be absolute. You either have to not even love yourself enough to like chocolate. Or you have to be the most rigidly disciplined person I've ever met to not eat half a dozen of them. The first help. They're absolutely phenomenal. But you see, you can only imagine what that chocolate-covered Carlson donut tastes like. But I've experienced it. I have experienced it. And I'm talking myself in the door there, Saturday. The problem is, they only make certain there sometimes at 10 o'clock in the morning. They're sold out. You talk about ruining your day. 
you would think they would be in business enough to make enough of those things they could sell them all day long, but they don't do it like that. No, no, no. They want them to be absolutely fresh when you buy them. So if you really want a donut, you get yourself up and get moving. And you get to the Carlson's and stand in that line and get you one of those donuts because it is They are so good. But see, you've never tasted it. And it would be easy for you to say, it's not worth the trouble. But if I could bring one of them in here today, just one, and cover it, cut it up in enough pieces to give you the tiniest little taste of donut and chocolate, just a little bit. If you love chocolate at all, you're done. You're finished. It's over. You will make your way sometime in your life to Annapolis, Maryland to Carlson's Donuts to make sure you get some. That's how we're made. And we want to stand in the pulpit and preach about donuts to a world that's not even there to listen. And wonder why nobody wants what we've got. Because we've never taken a taste of it to them. So they could experience it. This is not complicated. And there's 60 pages of notes in your hand there. And you, and you can read it, not read it, it's up to you, it doesn't matter. But it's, it's all, there's a nice logical flow to the notes. Not to my teaching, just to the notes. Study the scripture. Look at it for yourself. Let the Lord talk to you. You know, it, it doesn't matter. Friends Day, it, 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 it doesn't matter. You know, down here, you know what he's telling me? They get a bunch of catfish, pull out that secret recipe, and they cook up all this catfish, and they invite all the firemen, and all the policemen, and the politicians, all of those folks. Judge it. Invite all those folks to come and eat free catfish. Every one of them can buy their own catfish. In case you're not from the area, if you go into a restaurant here that doesn't sell catfish, it's either some Chinese place, and they probably even sneak a little bit of catfish to you if you really wanted it, or some place like that, Burger King or whatever. But if it's, if, if it's a regular restaurant, not, not a specialty restaurant. Everybody sells catfish. Why would these people, all these important busy people, take their time to come over here and eat catfish with this man in this church? Because that's the way we're all made. Everybody appreciates being appreciated. Everybody appreciates somebody being kind enough to say thank you. Everybody appreciates somebody with a handout to give, not a handout to take. The Lord wants to do something for you. He wants to do something through you. Now, you have to accept the fact that your crowd's not your church. And you've got to do different when the crowd's there. I don't mean shout less. But you're preaching good news to the crowd. 
You're preaching about Jesus to the crowd. You're not preaching doctrine to the crowd. You're preaching Jesus to the crowd. Preaching the goodness of God to the crowd. The fact He's willing to save them. Willing to take all their guilt and shame away. We think somehow we're sinning. If we preach good news to somebody. Well, I've got to preach hell to them. The Bible says some you save with fear, but others you save with compassion. I'm going to say this to you. You and the Lord will have to take it however you want to take it. But when Brother Bill and I talked about this today, I felt in my spirit that every one of you it would take the word, not, not my words, but these notes, study them for yourself, dig in the, in the scriptures for yourself, let God talk to you for yourself, and then let Him give you a plan for implementing and discerning and implementing the seasons of your church. That next year at this time, your attendance, not your church, but your attendance will be doubled. I know I'm stepping out there, but I've been where you are. Kind of basically still am. I know, I know the frustration, but hear me right now. God's got a plan. It's not your traditional religious plan. It is a biblical plan. Jesus met needs. Then he preached the gospel. The old saying is, they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. Do we really communicate that to our communities? Do we really communicate that to our communities? Or do we make sure our building is all fixed up nice and the yard's all, all mowed and all that's important, but it's appearances. It's appearances. This isn't about appearances. This is about reality. This is about People experiencing the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, the living God. Somehow, I've got to get that reality out of the barn into the field. Somehow. The problem is, we want, it, we want instantaneous results. And there's no such thing because God's not going to, He's not going to do that. But you will reap, biblically, the principle is, you will reap in proportion to your sowing. There's three things, sowing, watering, reaping. Only two of those do I have any influence over. Some sow, some water, God gives the increase. Why is it we measure the increase but don't measure the soaring and watering. Why is it our focus is on God's part and not on our part? Our part is the sowing. Our part is the watering. The increase is God's part. If there's no fruit at the end of the branch, there's something wrong in the connection between the branch and the vine. 
pray. Father, we love you today. We really do believe your word. Even though sometimes, Lord, we we act like we really believe all of your word when we don't believe it like we need to believe it. Open our eyes, Lord. Let us see. Let us see. Let us understand, Lord. You died for these souls. You've called us to be your conduit for your love to flow through us to reach them. And Lord, we're not letting that happen. Not because we're unwilling, but because we don't understand. We're doing what we've been taught to do, fearful of questioning whether or not that's really your way. Help us, Lord. Help us in Jesus' name. Help us in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah.